and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Gary Chen from Kaiser Permanente talking about small renal mass, step-by-step RAPN. Good morning, everyone. My name is Carissa Chu. I'm a urology resident at UCSF. Um, It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gary Chin, uh, who is the Urology Residency Program Director at Kaiser LA. Uh, He's going to be taking us through a robotic retroperitoneal partial nephrectomy, so I'm looking forward to his talk. Um, So thank you for joining us, Dr. Chin. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, I want to first start off by uh, complimenting uh, your team at UCSF. And I know not all of you are uh, UCSF as far as the committee goes. I I applaud you for coming together at such a quick moment to arrange uh, something that's so collaborative um, amongst the, basically, you know, I know there's international uh, people that are that are collaborating in, in this as well uh, in this unprecedented uh, time. So uh, I applaud you uh, for doing this. So thank you very much. So uh, the title of my talk is actually Management of uh, Small Renal Mass Part Two, um, with a, a second part of this. Uh, the talk will be on a step by step of robotic retroperitoneal partial nephrectomy. I have no disclosures. So, uh, you know, I came up with this talk, actually, most of it, uh, after seeing that uh, there was a talk uh, on uh, management of small renal mass given about two weeks ago uh, by Dr. Ken Perry at uh, uh, Northwestern University. So uh, this is a compliment to it. Um, So, uh, you know, for those of you who, uh, you know, access this talk later, maybe uh, you can watch his first. a little bit of an outline of my talk today. And again, because this is a compliment to the former talk, uh, it basically kind of takes off from uh, where he had it before. So I'm gonna start by uh, discussing the imaging diagnosis of renal masses uh, with an emphasis on the Bosnia classification. Um, I'll also go over the 2017 AUA small renal mass guidelines, which is actually the most recent um, uh, renal mass guidelines from the AUA. And finally, as I said, I'll go over a step-by-step of the uh, robotic partial nephrectomy retroperitoneal approach. Um, uh, I believe this is probably the approach that most people, the audience, would be interested in hearing about. So uh, renal masses, they come to us as urologists, uh, as uh, consults, uh, usually having had done an ultrasound, CT scan, or MRI. Um, Even based on these traditional imaging, uh, one can almost kind of discern what they are um, uh, typically a clear cell would have a ball appearance. They're heterogeneous. Uh, papillary masses are usually described as well circumscribed and they're homogenous. Uh, chromophobes, they're well circumscribed, they're homogenous, and a lot of times they'll have a um, classic stellate scar. Uh, this is also seen on oncocytomas. When uh, the urologist uh, uh, suspects that it may be renal cell carcinoma, then a metastatic workup really should be done. Uh, Patients should get their LFTs, chest x-ray, alkaline phosphatase, sometimes calcium, albumin. um, And a bone scan really should be done uh, limited limited, uh, for patients with elevated uh, phosphatase and uh, and or if the patient is symptomatic, such as bone pain. and if on abdominal imaging, patients are found to have locally advanced um, renal cell carcinoma, such as uh, regional lymphadenopathy, then uh, uh, one should also consider having a CT of the brain or MRI of the brain. As far as the role of PET scan, um, you know, basically the literature has shown that PET scans uh, should not be done routinely for metastatic workup. Uh, but they do have um, higher sensitivity with lower specificity for most of the PET scans. Um, And so uh, it is thought that they may have a role in monitoring progression. So after the primary treatment is done, um, uh, there may be a role for getting a PET scan to see whether patients develop metastatic disease or uh, progressive uh, metastatic disease. Now, as far as the role of SESTA-MEBI scan, I think this was discussed in the previous uh, lecture two weeks ago. Um, this has been shown now uh, to have a role in discerning uh, the subtypes of renal cell carcinoma. 
uh, you know, the system maybe scan may have a um, accuracy in, in uh, assessing whether the mass is an oncocytoma or chromophobe. Uh, but, you know, I would say this is probably still a very limited role in getting a system maybe scan because it still doesn't tell you the difference between an oncocytoma and a chromophobe. Uh, so in most instances, it really doesn't determine what we do. And so that's why uh, most centers uh, do not order this. I don't personally order it. So here is a typical example of a coronal view on a CT scan of a clear cell carcinoma. Uh, the mass looks like a ball sitting on the lower pole um, of the kidney. It's not a perfect round ball, but it, it is the ball sitting on the kidney. Um, and it's heterogeneous, it's solid, um, and it's typical for clear cell. Here's a, an example of a papillary RCC. Uh, it's hypovascular, it's homogenous. And these are two examples of uh, chromophobe or oncocytoma. Uh, these masses are described to be homogenous, and a lot of times they'll have these peripheral or internal tumor vessels. Um, and a lot of times with the oncocytoma and chromophobe, uh, sp uh, specifically oncocytoma, they can have a hypoattenuating central stellate scar. Uh, next, we're gonna talk about the Bosnia classification. Um, this is uh, classically defined by imaging on the CT scan. Um, class one Bosniak cysts, they're simple cysts, and these cysts basically are imperceptible, uh, well, excuse me, they have imperceptible wall, uh, they're rounded, and the workup and the follow-up for this is basically none because the malignancy is uh, approaches zero, zero percent. When you go up to Bosniak two cysts, these are uh, minimally complex, um, they will have a thin less than one millimeter septa uh, or thin cal calcifications. And um, within the cyst, they'll have non-enhancing high attenuation. And this is mostly because of the proteinaceous cyst or hemorrhagic fluid that's inside the cyst. Uh, these are typically described as less than three centimeters. And again, the workup for this and the metastatic uh, workup for this is none uh, because of the percentage of malignancy approaches zero as well. When you go up to Bosniak 2F, uh, these are now um, complexes and uh, they'll have increased number of septa, um, minimally thickened and with uh, nodules or they, they could have thickened calcification. 2F, by the way, stands for follow. Um, although they may have perceived uh, contrast en enhancement, they do not have measurable contrast enhancement. And uh, contrast enhancement typically is described as Hounsfield difference of uh, 20 from uh, pre to uh, contrast phase. And uh, these cysts are typically greater than three centimeters. Uh, these do require follow-up. Um, as far as the frequency and the length of follow-up, it's really, there's no guidelines for that. It's really up to shared decision-making and they can be followed by ultrasound, CT, or MRI. Percentage, percentage of malignancy of this is up to about 5%. So this is the typical uh, Bosniak 2 cyst. Um, as you can see, uh, one may think in the uh, non-contrast phase that this cyst enhances, but it's, uh, uh, you can tell on the contrast phase that basically there's no difference between the two, and therefore this is a two because it's also less than three centimeters. This is the Bosniak 2F, and the reason why uh, it satisfies the 2F is because, number one, it does have this um, uh, thickened uh, calcification, uh, and also the cyst itself is greater than three centimeters. Bosniak 3 cysts, uh, these are now considered indeterminate renal lesions. Uh, these are thick. They, uh, they, have, they have thick or nodular um, multiple septa or wall. And uh, again, these have measurable enhancement uh, or they're hyperdense on, on CT. Uh, the percentage of malignancy really jumps up now to uh, greater than 55%. This is an example of a uh, Bosniak 3 cyst with a clearly enhancing uh, nodule within the cyst. Bosniak 4, these are basically cancer until proven otherwise. Um, they're solid masses with a large cystic component or a necrotic component. And the percentage, percentage of malignancy is the same as any kind of solid renal mass, 80 to 100%. So an example of a renal mass with a necrotic uh, center component. So next I'm gonna go over the 2017 AUA uh, renal mass guidelines. Um, I know this is a busy slide, 
uh, but I'll just kind of briefly go over um, what's on this um, algorithm. So essentially, um, the committee or the uh, panel um, recommends uh, obtaining an imaging, uh, the metastatic workup, as we talked about. Um, and uh, the consult is then referred to the urologist. The urologist should uh, undergo a lot of uh, shared decision making. Uh, and they may send them to get a renal mass biopsy. Now, I know renal biopsy was uh, discussed quite a bit in the last lecture, so I won't concentrate on that. Um, but uh, I'm going to concentrate mainly on the management, uh, surgical management specifically, uh, on partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy. Um, and uh, the other talk also quite, uh, discussed quite a bit on active surveillance and thermal ablation. So I won't talk too much about these two. Now, that was the 2017 renal mass guideline. Uh, lots of change in the world since uh, a month ago. And, uh, you know, this is really what we do now. Patients come to us with a renal mass. We do telephone visit, do a lot of shared decision making over the telephone, maybe a biopsy. I know a lot of centers still do, uh, uh, are doing biopsies right now. Um, and then there's a lot of surveillance, 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 and more surveillance until the pandemic is over. So who knows how the uh, guidelines going to be after the post-COVID era. Anyway, going back to the um, 2017 uh, renal mass guidelines. So again, this is, uh, they, they don't get updated that frequently. Uh, the last uh, update was from, or the last uh, guideline was from 2009. Um, and I'm gonna just kind of highlight uh, what the, the, uh, the uh, panel has said uh, for the 2017 uh, renal mass guideline. I'm not gonna talk about all of it. I'm gonna highlight some of the more important ones and also, also some of the changes from the 2009 guidelines. So number one, there's no uh, description now of an index patient. Uh, in 2009, there was an index patient, a healthy index patient. Now there's no index patient. The panel now recommends that all patients should undergo individualized counseling and management with an increased emphasis of functional outcome and survivorship of these patients. There's now a restricted role for radical nephrectomy. It used to be considered uh, an equal option, uh, but now there's a restricted role for that. I'll go over more of that in detail. Um, <clears throat> the primary role now uh, has been described now for any mass that's T1A uh, and otherwise, meaning that if one can do it, one really should try to do a, par a partial nephrectomy. There's also a described uh, selective use of uh, thermal ablation, uh, which wasn't really described before. Um, and this is uh, thought to be most effective for anything less than three centimeters. Um, and shared decision now is also uh, specifically described for active surveillance. So uh, when the patient comes to the urologist, uh, the recommendation is that evaluation should be recommended for staging a CKD, uh, the patients, uh, if they have any CKD. And uh, urologists should consider referral to nephrology in patients with GFR uh, less than 45, proteinuria, or diabetic CKD. And uh, genetics counseling should also be considered for patients less or equal to 46 of age uh, with multifocal or bilateral renal masses or family history. Renal mass really should be considered uh, as per panel, uh, but not recommended for all. Now, I can tell you that since 2017, there's definitely uh, an increasing role, expanding role now for um, a biopsy. Personally, at our institution, um, we don't do them on everybody. Um, and uh, we still go with the, um, the eventual goal is that if um, a, a biopsy is recommended, it really should steer the clinician and the patient um, of a management, uh, management uh, goal. Otherwise, uh, biopsy usually is not done. So uh, just briefly, I'm gonna talk a little bit about active surveillance. Uh, this is uh, recommended by the panel for uh, masses specifically less than two centimeters uh, or Bosniak 346, uh, less than three centimeters in healthy patients. But spe specifically, it's uh, highly recommended for elderly decrease, uh, patients with decrease, decreased life expectancy and low performance status. Uh, it's been shown that periods of uh, active surveillance is associated with low risk of, or, of size or stage progression while maintaining therapeutic options. And the growth rate uh, for renal masses is quoted to be about 0.28 centimeters a year. 
So the role of radical nephrectomy, it's still described um, and specifically by the panel, is, uh, it should be done for patients with renal masses that have an increased oncological, oncological potential. And what does that mean? Well, it's described as uh, increased tumor size and there's not a specific size now that the panel recommends radical nephrectomy. Uh, it is a continuous variable. Um, patients that have renal masses that have uh, on a biopsy, if they undergo a biopsy, high grade, unfavorable histology, um, and or imaging appearance of uh, the mass having infiltrative appearance or locally invasive into fat venous or lymph node involvement. In addition, um, if the patients have the following criteria, radical nephrectomy can be considered by the urologist. If they have uh, high tumor complexity on a on nephrometry score, um, partial nephrectomy uh, sometimes could be challenging, even in experienced hands, uh, as determined by the urologist. Uh, if patients have uh, no existing CKD or proteinuria, one can maybe favor radical nephrectomy a little bit more. Uh, and or uh, patients have normal contralateral kidney with um, anticipated new baseline EGFR likely greater than 45 after radical nephrectomy. When doing a radical nephrectomy, um, the urologist should um, uh, consider regional lymphadenectomy when you see it clinically, um, preoperatively on imaging or intraoperatively. Um, and a lab or robotic uh, approach really should be considered as a primary approach. Adrenalectomy, ipsilateral adrenalectomy should be performed only when locally invasive, again, uh, if that's seen uh, on imaging or intraoperatively. Now this is important. Um, this is something uh, since 2017 we've asked our pathologists to do too, uh, that uh, you know, when you do a radical nephrectomy, you really should ask the pathologist to examine uh, and comment on the normal renal parenchyma uh, because if the patient does develop CKD, it will, will direct the care a lot better. So the role of the partial nephrectomy, uh, this is traditionally reserved for patients with solitary kidney, patients with CKD or inheritable forms of renal uh, cancer. But uh, urologists really should now prioritize um, as per panel uh, to offer partial nephrectomy for management specifically for C1A renal masses. And partial nephron sparing, partial nephrectomy and nephron sparing really should be considered for young patients with uh, multifocal masses or comorbidities that could impact their renal function in the future. During a partial nephrectomy, urologists should prioritize uh, preservation of the renal function. They should save uh, as much of the normal kidney parenchyma as possible and also decrease your warm ischemia time. And of course, you should balance that with a uh, negative surgical margin. That should be a priority. Tumor nucleation, um, the panel says this should not be done routinely and it should only be considered in patients with familial RCC, multifocal disease, or severe CKD uh, near dialysis. So there's still role, uh, role for open partial nephrectomy. It's still um, done in, in a lot of centers and uh, it's still considered by the panel as one of the standards of care for localized renal masses. Um, the one advantage definitely that it has over uh, other approaches would be the cold ischemia. Partial nephrectomy definitely like uh, a lot of uh, urologic surgery has gone through some paradigm changes in the last uh, 15, 20 years. Um, laparoscopic partial nephrectomy until um, pretty recently was one of the paradigm changes from open partial and it was an attempt to achieve equivalence with open partial uh, but it's been shown now in lots of um, uh, papers that it uh, has a long learning curve and a lot of these series have shown longer warm ischemia time um, and also post-op uh, higher bleeding and hemorrhage and uh, therefore uh, you know most centers now have uh, decreased or pretty much abandoned this approach uh, partial nephrectomy. Robotic partial nephrectomy has really uh, come onto the stage um, because of its long-term safety and oncologic results and one of the typical large studies uh, right around the time uh, 2016 when I think the U.S. Uh, has kind of shifted uh, over to uh, robotic partial nephrectomy 
was published by Dr. Kayuk at Cleveland Clinic, uh, where he showed a, a, a pretty long follow-up of 115 robotic partial nephrectomy patients and uh, showed that the results were equivalent, if not better, uh, than uh, uh, open and laparoscopic partial nephrectomies. Uh, of course, the widespread use of da Vinci robot has also contributed to uh, robotic partial nephrectomies um, popularity. Um, you know, uh, this is incidentally also the most common modality which we treat uh, surgically any RCC at my institution. Um, this is some of the data from our institution, and I think it also reflects uh, kind of what's been happening in the U.S. Uh, so I wanted to kind of just briefly show this table. Um, so in 1999, um, within our system, uh, the most common uh, surgery that was done for kidney cancer was a radical nephrectomy, whether it's open or lap. And you can see that partial nephrectomy of all modalities uh, really quickly uh, increased and kind of crossed over and overtook radical nephrectomy as the most common surgical management of kidney cancer right around 2011. And we break down the different modalities of um, radical versus partial nephrectomy, you can see that from 2008 to 2015, in 2008, lap radical nephrectomy was the most common uh, modality by far, and um, partial nephrectomy was second, but partial nephrectomy really just uh, took a nosedive, and actually, if we extend it out now, it's basically zero. Um, robotic partial nephrectomy really went up quite a bit and basically crossed over lap nephrectomy in 2013-2014. Uh, and, and has stayed uh, as the most common way we treat kidney cancer now, uh, as well as uh, uh, probably the U.S. at this point. And this is a series of about uh, over 5,000 patients. Briefly, I want to kind of go over uh, how we determine complexity of, of renal mass. Uh, again, this was discussed quite a bit um, two weeks ago at the uh, small renal mass talk. Um, Renal nephrometry score is uh, arguably the most common way and most validated way that we um, speak uh, nephrometry score. Um, the score is usually stratified from 4 to 12. Uh, I have to say personally, I don't use the actual numbers anymore. I stratify it by low, medium, and high. And it gives me a really good idea to uh, kind of discuss the um, possible uh, uh, intraoperative or perioperative risks uh, with the patient. And also, uh, in my note, I'm able to kind of refer it very quickly to see what I was talking about when I was talking to the patient. So the remainder of the talk, I uh, want to kind of go over um, the uh, retroperitoneal uh, partial nephrectomy. Uh, and the reason why I chose to just go over the retroperitoneal approach is because I know that uh, across the U.S., uh, transperitoneal approach is definitely uh, much more commonly done, and um, most of you guys uh, are probably familiar with it and are comfortable with it. Um, so I want to just specifically kind of go over the step-by-step -step of a retroperitoneal approach. Um, so there is definitely some theoretical advantages to the retroperitoneal approach. Um, one being that you don't have to mobilize the colon. Uh, as soon as you get in there, uh, you're looking, you know, basically right at the kidney. Um, and theoretically, you could have a easier hyalur dissection as well because you don't have to mobilize the, the colon. Um, and particularly for posterior tumors and, uh, and actually um, specifically for upper po posterior tumors, um, you don't have to mobilize the kidney, uh, for, you know, whereas in transperitoneal, sometimes that can take a long, long time to do. Um, there are a lot of patients who have had multiple abdominal surgeries, uh, you know, with a hostile abdomen that basically precludes you from uh, wanting to do transperitoneal surgery and or they have a colostomy on the same side um, that precludes you from trans transperitoneal surgery. Uh, one uh, example that um, basically also makes the retroperitoneal approach a lot more uh, desirable is uh, patients who are on peritoneal dialysis. Uh, if you do a transperitoneal surgery, uh, these patients probably would have to be converted to hemodialysis uh, with a uh, hemodialysis catheter temporarily um, and, uh, and then convert it back to uh, peritoneal dialysis again uh, once you feel that the peritoneum is healed up. In a retroperitoneal surgery, you know, the, the night of the surgery, they can get um, uh, uh, peritoneal dialysis. 
So uh, another theoretical advantage uh, is this one. Now, uh, you know, any kind of renal trauma now, uh, the guidelines say, uh, even grade five, um, you know, one of the options is to watch the patient conservatively. And so that kind of goes along with uh, a partial nephrectomy. Basically, a partial nephrectomy is uh, we're causing the renal trauma. And so theoretically, if it's done in a retroperitoneal fashion, uh, you know, we can basically just watch it and theoretically it does contain the bleed and urine leak better uh, in this space than the transperitoneal space. Some disadvantages. Um, the first one I think is the most important one. Um, you know, I, I know um, many of you may have uh, heard talks or gone to uh, weekend courses uh, where you've heard uh, high volume retroperitoneal surgeons talk about how great this approach is. But I will say that all of us who have done enough of these retroperitoneal approaches, uh, you know, we will all agree that you, you have very limited working space. And because of that, it definitely takes a lot of getting used to, uh, to work in this limited uh, working space. Especially also for the novice surgeon who starts um, doing the retroperitoneal surgery, um, you know, it's very hard to know your landmarks, uh, what's medial, what's lateral, what's cephalad, what's caudal, and uh, the orientation is very confusing in the beginning. So it's been, it's been described that the retroperitoneal surgery has a very steep and long learning curve, as opposed to a lot of other surgeries, sometimes a steep and short learning curve. This is also long. Um, another challenging thing about it is uh, a lot of retroperitoneal surgeries are not done uh, even at a lot of tertiary centers. Um, and even at centers that do it, they don't do a lot of them. So it's hard as a trainee to learn how to do this and to be facile with it. There's also not a lot of, um, actually there's not any uh, prospective randomized studies uh, comparing uh, retroperitoneal versus transperitoneal approaches. Uh, most of the studies out there are not large and they're all retrospective studies. Uh, this is probably one of the better uh, tables that, that's been produced of all the largest studies that have been comparing um, transperitoneal versus retroperitoneal uh, partial nephrectomy. Um, and I would say most of the studies have shown that all the perioperative variables, including um, operative time, warm ischemia, uh, EBL, conversion to radical nephrectomy, positive surgical margin, hospital stay, uh, and total complication are pretty much uh, equivalent uh, between the two approaches. If anything, um, uh, you know, a lot of these studies, of course, uh, they may be biased, uh, tending, trending towards better uh, perioperative outcomes for retroperitoneal surgery. One of the, I think, most contemporary uh, larger studies uh, was a post-hoc analysis of a prospective database of 690 patients after robotic partial nephrectomy by 22 surgeons at 14 centers uh, across the world in nine countries uh, and follow over four years. Um, they had 99 patients in this series uh, who underwent retroperitoneal partial nephrectomy, which makes it about 14%. Incidentally, that's about the percentage of retroperitoneal approach uh, we do at my center. Um, and the authors then uh, use weighted adjustments of uh, confounding variables and compare the retroperitoneal to the transperitoneal approach. And essentially, they found um, that the operative time, warm ischemia time, intraoperative complications, conversion to radical nephrectomy, um, the uh, post-op clavian grade, uh, surgical margins and the change in EGFR after surgery were basically identical between the transperitoneal and the retroperitoneal surgeries. Uh, the difference that they did find was that the retroperitoneal surgery did have a shorter hospital stay of one day versus three days for transperitoneal. Um, the authors theorized that probably the reason for that is that transperitoneal surgery may have a little bit more of an ileus, so the patients stay longer for that. Although not statistically significant, there was a trend towards less uh, blood loss also for the retroperitoneal surgery. So uh, as promised, I'm gonna go over the step-by-step -step, uh, procedure of a retroperitoneal uh, approach to partial nephrectomy. Um, I've compiled basically uh, from several sources. Uh, first is the uh, AUA University core curriculum. Um, this is readily available to you guys too. Uh, the partial retroperitoneal nephrectomy um, video uh, by Ghani, Menon, and Rogers. And also I've compiled some videos from uh, probably the uh, world's uh, highest volume retroperitoneal surgeon, Dr. James Porter from Swedish Hospital, and another video from France. 
Of course, I'm gonna use um, you know, my own experience to comment on, these, uh, on this approach. Uh, but I will say that you know, a lot of these surgical technique talks uh, may be subjective, especially for a surgery like this, where uh, not a lot of surgeons do this. And also even the, uh, some of the surgeons that do this, uh, they don't do it as high volume as a transparent perineal approach. So there may be a lot of variations among the experts. Uh, so what I'm gonna discuss today is really meant to complement your knowledge of retroperineal approach. Um, you know, if you're, if you're attending and your center is doing it, definitely follow your attending, uh, the instructions. The, um, the hope is that, you know, with uh, the information uh, from this lecture and also any kind of uh, other lectures you go to, uh, that you'll adopt the best practices when you go out and practice. But I do want to emphasize again that retroperineal approach uh, most of the time um, has been performed at high volume centers uh, by uh, surgeons who are apt at doing this approach because uh, there's just not, um, the, the, the learning curve again is steep and long. So patient positioning. Um, so typically uh, for uh, transparent neosurgery, most surgeons, I will say, uh, put patients on a uh, decubitus position uh, and they'll rotate the patient uh, usually a, a little bit, maybe 12 degrees away from you for a transparent neosurgery. Um, whereas a retroperitoneal surgery, the patient is straight up, um, you know, right at 12 o'clock. Uh, you don't want to rotate the patient over a little bit at all. Um, I also pad the patients uh, really well. I don't use a bean bag. Um, the arms go out anterior uh, in front of the patient. Uh, you strap everything down. Um, and um, I do break the table, uh, transperitoneal surgery. Um, you know, I know a lot of centers, uh, sometimes uh, uh, the surgeons don't break the table, but for retroperitoneal, you do have to break the table uh, as much as you can, because you really want to expose the space. Um, now for patients that have, uh, sometimes you encounter a patient with a really large hip, um, and the way to alleviate that is basically to, um, to position the patient maybe a little bit more caudally to get that hip away from you. Uh, when I drape the patient, I also like to expose the transperitoneal space, the anterior space. Uh, although, you know, I don't think I've ever remember having to uh, convert the surgery to a transperitoneal approach. Uh, you always have that possibility. So I always drape that in the view. Trocar incision. Um, this is uh, probably one of the um, uh, biggest difference between transperitoneal and uh, retroperitoneal approach. Um, so after the patient is prepped and draped, um, I mark out all the landmarks. Uh, this is showing the iliac crest having been marked. And this is the, the 12th rib. Um, and this is the 11th rib. You want to mark out the uh, medial uh, axillary line, anterior axillary line, and posterior axillary line. Um, Basically, right at uh, the tip of the 12th rib and the iliac crest, about one third uh, of the distance from the tip of the 12th rib is I, where I make the first initial camera access port. Um, the surgeon here is marking out um, petite triangle. Uh, that's kind of the space that you want to go into. I do access, uh, a lot of times I know a lot of retroperitoneal surgeons will uh, use an open technique to access into that space. I use a 12 millimeter um, viewing trocar with a 10 millimeter uh, scope to get into that space. And um, you know, that's, this is one thing I think actually probably does not have a long learning curve. Uh, it's usually relatively straightforward uh, when you use a uh, viewing trocar. Uh, you'll go through the different um, muscle layers and fascial layers, and once you pop into the uh, retroperitoneal space, uh, it's, uh, the, the fat looks different, it's a little bit more yellow, and the consistency is also different, uh, so you know that you're in the retroperitoneal space. Once you're in the retroperitoneal space, you want to develop it. Um, we use uh, the structure balloon uh, um, made by Covidian. I think most people use the same thing. Um, the balloon needs to be a kidney-shaped, and what the video is showing you here is that you want to place the uh, orientation of the kidney-shaped uh, structured balloon in a uh, caudal cephalad orientation. You definitely don't want to expand it anterior posterior. As you take the obturator out, you want to kind of advance the trocar in, sort of in a Selinger technique, uh, because you want that balloon, the entire balloon, in that retroperitoneal space. 
You then put a uh, 10 millimeter uh, zero degree scope in and under visualization, you expand um, using, uh, you, you expand the, uh, the balloon. Um, and uh, this is uh, then showing immediately, you'll see your landmarks. Um, you'll see that uh, sometimes you'll see the ureter uh, and immediately at uh, six o'clock, you'll see your floor, that's the psoas muscle. Um, and you'll, you'll see the balloon will push up the paranephric fat anteriorly. Uh, and also you'll see the uh, mass effect from the balloon on the patient, uh, especially in, uh, in thin patients. You can kind of kind of press on it with a pen to see where your trocars want to be later. Once you've got that space developed, um, you want to take out the structure balloon and you want to put your trocar in. Now, this video is showing that they're using a balloon trocar. Uh, I personally don't typically use a balloon trocar. I used to use this and uh, many times after uh, I placed the other trocars in during the case, the balloon pops uh, because the space is so small and the robotic uh, uh, instruments uh, touch it and uh, the balloon pops. So uh, I, uh, several years ago, I adopted um, uh, using just a regular trocar, regular 12 millimeter uh, trocar. I put uh, some zero, uh, zero form in there uh, and I would say I, no, I never, um, never have uh, air leak during the surgery, or at least not significant enough that, that uh, impedes on the surgery. Um, so that's the camera port. So I know a lot of times these videos that you see, um, uh, or even watching a live surgery, it's uh, kind of hard to see exactly where the trocars are. So uh, here's a schematic view of uh, where the trocar placements are that I put. Um, so this is the 12th rib, uh, and this is the iliac crest. Um, so basically, you want to mark out. Um, basically, uh, you put in your. Uh, uh, you want to mark out your uh, landmarks of the 12th rib and the iliac crest, and you want to start your access uh, at the tip of the 12th rib, one third of the distance from the iliac crest, uh, from the tip of the 12th rib. And then uh, visualize a little arc uh, from your camera. And this is where you want to put your right hand working port and left hand working port, uh, right hand robotic and left hand uh, robotic. The distance needs to be at least six to eight centimeters uh, away, depending on how big the patient is, of course. Um, I know a lot of times, uh, and I'll, I'll show you in the video, people will mark it out. I usually just use my uh, four finger breaths. Uh, it's, if it's at least four finger breaths away, then it should be okay. I do use a fourth arm um, for my partial nephrectomy retroperitoneal approach. Uh, this fourth arm is a little bit more challenging, uh, which I'll show you in the, in, uh, later on in the video. Uh, I put it as distal or as caudal and as interior as I can. Um, and to put this in, you gotta make sure that you're not going into the peritoneum. And then I have two assistant ports. Uh, this one is a 12, meter, 12, meter, 12 millimeter port. Uh, that directly uh, gets into the hilum a lot more easily for the assistant. And uh, this is um, a five millimeter, we use air seal. Um, and so this one can also be used by the assistant uh, if you need two assistant ports. These two ports are basically triangulating. Um, uh, this uh, assistant port is triangulating between the right arm and the camera port. And this one kind of triangulates between the camera and the left hand port. Okay, so this is kind of just a video to show, uh, you know, we insufflate the retroperitoneum uh, up to 50 millimeters of mercury, uh, and then you put the other trocars in under direct visualization. Uh, this is, of course, before you dock. Um, and again, you know, uh, a lot of surgeons will mark out the exact centimeters. Uh, I don't do that. I usually use at least four fingers uh, breath away from uh, each of the trocars. Uh, you saw just now that they were using a spinal needle. A lot of times, um, you know, using a laparoscope, uh, you can't see exactly where you're coming in. And so if you're not sure, it's okay to use a spine needle to see where your trocar will be coming in uh, exactly later. This is showing that we kind of tease down the peritoneum uh, to make sure we don't get into the peritoneal cavity. Okay, so this is the picture of my surgery. Um, so again, you know, a lot of times I do think that these trocar placements, uh, it's hard to tell on a photograph. That's why I did the schematic view. Um, so this is towards the feet, this is towards the head. 
this is my initial access camera port, uh, which is placed about one third of the distance to the 12th rib. Here's the uh, crust, uh, iliac crust. This patient actually did not have a lot of space here. Um, so it doesn't look like it's one third of the, uh, the, the space, but it is. Um, and here is um, the left hand, uh, right hand working port. Um, excuse me, uh, this is, yeah, that's correct. That's the left hand working port, right hand working port. And this is the fourth arm. Um, and the assistant 12 millimeter port and a five air seal port. So um, it's just a little video of how I place the fourth arm. Uh, this is anterior to the patient, posterior to the patient. That's the camera uh, port that we placed in. Um, you know, we just um, uh, have to be careful when you put in the fourth arm that uh, that you don't get into the peritoneal cavity or, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, injure the, the bowel. So a lot of times I'll use a little uh, blunt instrument uh, and dissect down the peritoneum. Um, and uh, once you make sure that you uh, definitely uh, don't have any kind of peritoneum uh, or peritoneal structures in place, uh, that's when you can put your trocar in. So you can see that uh, this trocar goes in well away from the peritoneum. So docking, um, we uh, currently at our institution still have the SI, um, but we're getting the XI soon. But for the SI, uh, you know, it's a little bit tricky. You have to let your anesthesia know and you dock the robot over the head of the patient. So we usually rotate the entire patient, uh, patient's bed 180 degrees uh, and then we dock the robot uh, right over the head of the patient. The XI is a little bit easier. Um, you can basically dock on the uh, patient's right side, patient's left side, or uh, from patient's feet. Uh, anesthesia can still be where they normally are. Okay, so um, a little bit about uh, the orientation. So as you get in, uh, you'll see that uh, there's para, A-R-A, nephric fat that you have to get off. Uh, a lot of times I'll dissect this off and I'll put it in the lower part um, of the lower pole of the kidney or I'll take it out so that it doesn't confuse me. Um, one thing that's real important is as you incise through the posterior gyrosis fascia that you don't dissect right along uh, the psoas muscle. Um, you want to actually, um, after you open the um, uh, gyrosis fascia, and uh, the next slide will kind of show you a little bit about this, you want to keep a little bit of fat on the muscle uh, because then it'll lead you directly to the uh, hilar vessel much more easily. Exposure of the mass and ultrasound of the mass. Um, there's a little bit of um, nuances with this as well in the retroperitoneal approach. Um, you know, when you correlate it with your abdominal imaging, uh, MRI or CT scan, uh, initially for the novice surgeon, it can be kind of confusing where your renal mass is. It may be more superior, more medial, more lateral, uh, more caudal. Um, but once you find it, I always tell our chief residents, uh, you can never um, uh, be mad at yourself for not dissecting enough perinephric fat off around the tumor because once you resect, uh, you still need uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, uh, parenchyma to do your cortical suture. So uh, you want to free up uh, you know, a lot of this perinephric fat around the tumor. Um, we use the BK ultrasound drop-in probe. Um, and uh, a little bit of a difference between a retroperitoneal surgery versus transperitoneal is that uh, you're not going to get a lot of mobility with this, um, this ultrasound probe. Uh, you won't be able to bend it. You just have to get used to exactly the orientation that it comes in. And what this video is showing is that the mass may seem on the outside to be quite exophytic, but actually it's, uh, you know, quite, uh, it's deeper than you might think. Um, so uh, you, you, I, I routinely do ultrasound uh, my renal masses, and uh, there's definitely a learning curve as, as far as um, uh, how to read the ultrasound, um, given the fact that you can't really manipulate it. I won't go too much in detail about the tumor resection and the renography because I think uh, you guys are all probably a little bit uh, more comfortable with this. Uh, but what I will say is that uh, the setup prior to warm ischemia, you really have to 
um, you know, have a well choreographed um, set of uh, things that you do every single time. So one, you got to make sure that all your needed sutures are open. Um, you don't want the, um, the nurse to go outside of the room to look for a suture that you want while you're in warm ischemia time or if you're bleeding. Uh, so you want to make sure that any kind of uh, maybe cortical sutures, you want your nurse to make it. So make it all before uh, you even start the case. Um, particularly for the retroperitoneal approach, uh, you want to make sure that your robotic arms, all four of them, uh, if you use forearms, have full mobility. And that's really important because you may think that all your arms are working just fine when you're uh, in the hilum. Uh, but then when you get to the renal mass and you're doing the resection under warm ischemia time, suddenly you realize one of your arms clashes and you can't move it. Uh, and that happens definitely more frequently uh, in a retroperitoneal approach than a transperitoneal approach. So you want to make sure that you're, uh, you do a little dry run before you clamp the artery um, and you're moving around freely around the area of the renal mass. You also want to make sure that uh, all the types of robotic instruments that you need are in the room or open. Uh, if you need two needle holders, make sure that you have two needle holders. If you need a clipifier, uh, make sure you have that. Um, and also you want to make sure that your assistant has full mobility. Uh, again, don't assume that just because they've been sucking fine at the hilum, uh, they'll be, that they'll be able to assist you okay uh, at the area of the uh, renorphy and the resection. I usually like to put my bulldogs into the retroperitoneal space so that I have full control uh, of, of clamping the artery. Uh, I do think that uh, sometimes uh, when you have your assistant put it, you don't, uh, you, you know, you, you don't have full control over that. So I put it in there. Uh, I have my assistant put the bulldogs in there and I put it in myself. I, although I rarely use argon, uh, you know, occasionally when you want that extra uh, negative margin, you want to use the argon. So you want to make sure before you start warm ischemia that the argon does work. Uh, we at our institution pretty much routinely use Firefly now, ICG. Uh, if you do use this, you want to make sure that you flip it to the camera mode uh, before you start. Um, and uh, one caveat about the retroperitoneal space for uh, retroperitoneal approach for the Firefly is that usually in a transperitoneal uh, surgery, you have the luxury of uh, having a control where you look at the uh, liver or the spleen after you clamp the artery and you give ICG, you can see that the spleen and or the liver turns green. Uh, you don't have that in the retroperitoneal approach. You don't have the liver or spleen for you to look at. So basically you just gotta trust that uh, if the kidney does not light up after you get firefly uh, that you're ischemic. Uh, as said earlier, you should definitely let your anesthesia team know, uh, let your nurse know so they can record the warm ischemia. Um, and again, as stated earlier from the AUA guidelines, uh, that you want to, when you do the resection, you want uh, to minimize excess uh, parenchymal resection, but in the meantime, balance that with negative margins. Um, we typically will uh, just repair the deeper norophy to make sure that any kind of visible segmental artery um, is um, taken care of, uh, clamped or sutured, and any kind of um, uh, entrance into the collecting system is closed. And uh, we unclamp at that point, uh, and uh, we do the cortical sutures later. So early on clamping when you're able to do it. So extraction, we usually take it out of the camera port. Um, sometimes you may need to extend the incision, sometimes you don't. Um, and that's of course, you have to put a place of drain. I will say that, um, you know, even if you don't uh, extend the incision, uh, I definitely re highly recommend that you close all your uh, trocar incisions, uh, especially the ones that are greater than 12 millimeter. Uh, one may think that uh, because there's no uh, bowel, no momentum that you can't get a uh, hernia. I definitely have seen my, my share of uh, retroperitoneal hernia. So, um, you know, if you can't see the uh, fascia, you just grab it with a heavy clamp uh, and use a geo needle to, to close that fascia layer. So that concludes my talk. Um, I'll take any questions. Jujin, that was an awesome review. Thank you for going over the small renal mass management and also taking us through parts of that case. I think for a lot of trainees who experience decrease in surgical volume, it's really special for us to be able to go through that. Uh, we do have uh, quite a few questions um, and, you know, for anything that doesn't get answered in the next 10 minutes or 12 minutes or so, we'll make sure that make it onto the website. Um, you know, quite a few questions about the technique itself. Um, 
what what do you think is the role for a single port going forward? You know, once maybe um, uh, the XI becomes more mainstream, do you think the technique will change much? Do you think more people will be um, using the retroperitoneal approach? I do think so. Uh, again, this is very subjective. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that uh, retroperitoneal approach, and even in my own experience, uh, I can tell you that it's rare for one of my retroperitoneal partial nephrectomy patients not to go home on post-op day one. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with that study. That's why I quoted it uh, in the literature is that I do think that for whatever reason, um, they are just uh, um, more awake uh, the following day and they do go home a little bit earlier. So uh, I think as people get used to this approach, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the uh, community will demand it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, do you put your drain in through one of your trocars, uh, trocar sites or do you put a new... Uh, Good question. I do yeah. put it through the fourth arm, um, the fourth arm that I was talking about. And the reason why I put it there is because uh, that's the most anterior one. So certainly mm -hmm. post-op patients are lying on their backs. So you don't want a drain coming out of the back. Uh, so you want to put it in the most anterior, anterior uh, incision. And do you do any checks for urine or anything before you send them home? Um, do you check a creatinine? Yes. Yeah. So they typically stay at least for one night. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they, they get a creatinine, they get, um, you know, the regular uh, CVC lights and all that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, thanks. And um, a question about uh, how you manage a peritonotomy. Uh, so if you accidentally, you know, get into the peritoneum and um, I think it can be very challenging with the billowing and all that. What are, your, what are any tips and tricks that you might have? Great question. Um, that's definitely happened to me. Um, several times. Uh, and uh, so far, you know, I, I haven't had any instances of injuring bowel. Yeah, knock on wood. But um, so uh, a perinotomy is not the end of the world. Uh, certainly you can, uh, I, I basically just uh, asked my nurse to open up a chromic suture, um, a 3-0 or 4-0 uh, chromic suture cut to about six inches, and uh, you just suture it closed. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I like having a fourth arm in there because I'm, I'm still able to achieve and finish the retroperitoneal surgery by um, using that fourth arm to really push the kidney um, away from you. So uh, once you close it, invariably after, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes or so, you can pretty much achieve the same amount of space that you had before the peritonotomy. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, a question here about, uh, you know, does the retroperitoneal approach make anterior masses more difficult to deal with because you're, because of where everything's coming in? It is more challenging. Uh, now, I don't routinely do retroperitoneal surgery, uh, partial nephrectomies, if I know the, uh, the kidney mass is clearly anterior. Although I have had um, instances such as the indications that I talked about in my talk where patients have a hostile abdomen or uh, if, they, if they definitely have to preserve that uh, retroperitoneal space for perineal dialysis and they happen to have an anterior tumor. So I've had to, I've been forced to do that. Uh, so, so you just have to be really, really careful, especially for patients that don't have a lot of perinephric fat, uh, you know, where your peritoneum is uh, and where the kidney starts. So a lot of times I'll go right on the kidney, um, you know, basically defat the kidney as you approach anteriorly uh, until you find the mass. Very cool. Um, do you see an increase in, um, you know, hypercarbia or anything in these patients just because of the insufflation in the retroperitoneal space and the proximity to other vessels? Have you seen that? So, yeah, I, I, I think that's been talked about before, uh, and I believe there's been some, uh, no, not very high quality observational um, uh, reports on that as well, that retroperitoneal surgery can possibly cause a little bit more absorption of uh, carbon dioxide intraoperatively. Uh, and the theory is that the peritoneum is able to block the, the carbon dioxide a little bit more. So I don't know of any, um, you know, real good evidence really uh, to say that. As far as my anecdotal experience goes, um, you know, I, I will blame, uh, you know, probably about three, four years ago, we started using air seal. And since we started air, uh, using air seal, we've had uh, probably a higher incidence of patients that go home with um, 
sub-Q emphysema. Uh, and, you know, I have to say, I probably find it just as much with transperineal as retroperineal. Hmm. And so I blame it on the air seal, not so much the retroperineal approach. Interesting. Um, and then can we talk about the ports too? You said that when you are initially getting access to put your camera in, you use um, a visualizing port. Is yeah. that like a clear port and you can see the layers as you're going in? Right, yeah. I think using a port to get in, um, and actually I have to credit this to my uh, fellowship director, doc, Dr. Arya Shahab at University of Chicago. I hope he uh, watches this eventually. But that's um, the, re the reason why I do that is because I think, uh, and I, I've, I've done it the, the, the traditional way of how a lot of people do it is uh, you basically make an open incision, you, get, you use S retractors. Uh, I think that expands that initial incision too much, um, so much that it, it, you're leaking air the entire case. Uh, whereas I think if you initial, your initial uh, trocar is using, or your initial axis is using the uh, viewing trocar, you preserve that space. And that's why I think um, you have a little bit less leakage and maybe even less uh, sub-Q emphysema doing it that way. Because you're kind of uh, radially dilating as you're going in. As Correct, you're yes. You're making that space. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, all right, awesome. And um, can you maybe talk us through, um, you know, if, if one were to have to convert to a radical for whatever reason, um, how you might approach that retroperitoneally similarities and differences to transperitoneal? Yeah, so, you know, we, we definitely do our uh, radical retroperitoneal surgery, uh, radical nephrectomy retroperitoneally too. Um, and basically the approach is exactly the same. You know, I still use my fourth arm and the trocars are exactly the same. Um, and I, I basically, I bag it um, from the uh, system port, the 12 millimeter system port. And then um, after the, uh, the robot is undocked, uh, we uh, remove it through the camera port. Um, so the incision obviously needs to be a little bit bigger. Um, because of that. But, uh, you know, essentially it's the same way that we do a partial nephrectomy. I see. Okay, cool. Um, and, you know, I'll, this is probably not standard, I mean, this is not standard of care, but if there was somebody who um, had a solitary kidney, um, you know, a renal mass that's potentially amenable to um, a partial, but a tumor thrombus, would you approach that retroperitoneally as well? No, no. I. I don't know of anybody, um, you know, that, who has done that. I've never seen any uh, case report or videos about that. Although I'm sure um, someone with big cojones probably has done it in the literature. Um, but you know, one thing that I actually forgot to mention, and thank you for that question, is that I uh, I don't clamp the uh, renal vein um, for retroperitoneal surgery, um, just because I feel that the risk of uh, getting a peritonotomy, uh, well while uh, mobilizing the renal vein is too high. Um, so whereas in a transperineal approach, especially if the tumor is uh, near the hilum, I will clamp the renal vein just so that you minimize the back bleeding. Um, so in, again, in the retroperitoneal uh, approach, I don't clamp the vein. So for that reason, um, I think it's very, very difficult to get to the renal vein um, to have, uh, not, not that it's hard, hard to get to it, but it's, uh, hard to have good mobility around the renal vein, and you definitely don't want to, um, you know, compromise on your oncological results. So, uh, you know, if at all possible, any kind of vein thrombus, I would not do that retroperitoneally. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a question that actually just came in. Uh, so, awesome. So, what do you typically use to clamp the vein when you're transperitoneal? Using a... a I use a bulldog as well, yeah. Um, so, you know, because of my early experiences uh, being burned uh, with these uh, Scanlon uh, robotic clamps, uh, I always use at least two on the renal artery, uh, two uh, Scanlon clamps on the renal artery, and then one on the vein. Um, and one thing that I always tell our chief residents, uh, the renal vein, you don't actually, especially for a partial nephrectomy, you don't have to spend extra time to try and mobilize the entire thing. You don't have to mobilize the posterior part of it uh, because basically you just use the vein and you come to the anterior part of the vein and you clamp it from anteriorly. Mm -hmm. um, is there any, any uh, scenario where you might do this off clamp? Um, no, so we haven't, um, 
we haven't adopted uh, uh, you know selective clamping or zero ischemia um, and uh, certainly in a case of a retroperitoneal surgery because you have such a limited amount of space if you get into a lot of bleeding it's uh, you know you basically cloud up your view immediately so uh, I have never done a retroperitoneal surgery off clamp. Uh, I've done this very infrequently in a transperitoneal approach. If I feel that it's just a small little mass and the patient somehow convinced me to want to take them to the operating room, uh, mm -hmm. I have done that off clamp. But retroperitoneal, no. Okay, cool. Um, have you noticed any challenges with patients who've had um, vascular surgeries or you know pancreatitis where the retroperitoneal space might not be so clean? No, I have to say anecdotally, um, you know, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, we operated on somebody who had uh, a previous gunshot wound uh, and a splenectomy um, and uh, abscess and multiple drains in the, ab uh, in the, uh, in the perineal space. Uh, and I did a left partial on him and his uh, retroperitoneal space was pristine. It was completely virgin area. Um, so that's the nice thing about the retroperitoneal surgery is that I, I really think that that area is, uh, in, my, in my experience, not interrupted by anything that happens in the abdominal cavity. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.